been a, uh, the last month, really since the beginning of the year, we started a new series on the life of Jesus, and we're looking at it chronologically. Uh, we're just kind of working straight through. If you take all four Gospels, you can kind of do a harmony of the Gospels, and there's a timeline that's there. Jesus' public ministry uh, is three years, and so really these, this first month of January and even this next week, uh, we're really looking at that first year of Jesus' ministry. And oftentimes we think of that as the year of preparation or the year of obscurity. Jesus has not grown in great popularity yet. He's doing a few things that are very, very important, like we've been talking about. Uh, and so today we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which is we talked about Jesus' temptation last week, but we really only scratched the surface because there is so much that we could look at. And so if you were with us last week as we've been walking through this and thinking about it, uh, we, we said the very first week was John's prologue in John 1, 1 to 18, that Jesus is God, that he is eternal, uh, that he is the logos, that is that he is truth embodied. And when we see Jesus we see God, perfect humanity, living and walking among us. And then the second week, we saw John the Baptist, the last of the great prophets that would come and point to Jesus. And he points to Jesus and he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And really the last couple of weeks, and, and even this week to an extent, what we were talking about is that Jesus comes to save us from our sins. And oftentimes when we say that, what we mean is Jesus has come uh, to pay for my sins, that he goes to the cross and he lays down his life, that my sins are taken upon him and he pays for them. But the flip side of that coin, the two that go together, is not only does Jesus pay for our sins, but he lives the life that we haven't lived. He lives this life perfectly and completely and fully, and then he exchanges our sin for his perfect righteousness. And so the way that Jesus, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who saves us from our sins is not just taking our sins, but it's also giving us the finished work of his life. And so last week, or, or two weeks ago, when we were seeing John's baptism and he's pointing to Jesus and we see Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. He begins to walk this out perfectly and fully in every way. And so as we said last week, as he comes uh, to the temptation in Matthew chapter 4 and he goes out uh, to be tempted, and he's uh, completely and fully obedient in every way. He's beginning to undo the work of our sinfulness as people that hasn't done it all. We've not done it perfectly, but Jesus is doing it perfectly. And so we talked about the theological foundation of that last week as we looked at the temptation, that Jesus is undoing the work of Adam and Eve who looked and saw the fruit and decided that they could make the decisions themselves and they didn't trust God. And we saw the parallels of Jesus doing the exact opposite. Instead of taking and eating, he says, uh, man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he's beginning to do the work. And so Jesus is the second Adam that's doing what the first Adam couldn't do, what we haven't done. But then we also said Jesus is the perfect Israel. Israel who blew it in their quest to be the light that shows the world what God is like continually over and over again. Jesus comes and he's doing it perfectly in every way. And so as we're that kind of foundation, today we're going to follow that up and begin to just really look very practically of how we resist temptation, how we look to Jesus' finished work. But not only his finished work, but although he's purchased our righteousness, he's done for us what we couldn't do, and we rest in that, He's also the perfect example and pattern of how we res resist temptation and grow in obedience to the Father. And so we're going to look very closely at what Jesus does and how he does it and how that helps us in our daily walk as we seek to resist temptation. 
One more way of, of uh, kind of summarizing from last week is we talked about temptation. Temptation is that, that feeling of, uh, or the, the call there to go against the things that God has told us. Sin is ignoring God and the world he created or rebelling against the things God has told us in the world he created. And so temptation is to, to step into that and, and to believe that the center of the world is about us and what we do rather than about God and what he has said. And so we're tempted with that at different times in our life to make ourselves the center rather than God be the center. And so I, I want us to consider that as we think about practical things that helps us to resist temptation and to be more obedient that there is a temptation there to still make it about us. We can slip into this idea that as we look to Jesus as an example and we seek to follow him and we want to be like him, that then we can go, well, God's going to be pleased with me if I do these things well enough. And that's the slippery slope when we start to talk about obedience and how we do that. We're obedient because of who we now are in Jesus and he's remaking us in his image. By his grace, we've been saved and by his grace, he's remaking us as we continue to fix our eyes on him and look to him and we make it all about him and what he's done and who he is and that changes us. But there's always that slippery slope to go back to our sinful nature and go, I'm gonna be obedient because I'm a good person and look at what I'm doing. And then suddenly our resisting temptation and our seeking to be obedient is still about us. And it's still sinfulness at the heart of it. And so we always want to be fixing our eyes on Jesus and the theological foundation we talked about last week, that he has purchased our righteousness. So with that said, that kind of summary very quickly from last week, let's look at what Jesus does to prepare for the temptation, but then also how he answers in the moment. And so the first thing, look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Uh, Sometimes, or or I used to think a lot, maybe as a kid and and growing up, that part of Jesus' temptation was the 40 days of not eating, right? Like, especially as a kid, like he didn't eat for 40 days. Like, that would be awful. (laughs) That would be so horrible, right? Like, how could anyone do that? And we kind of think of that as being part of, of the temptation. But the truth is what we see here is it says that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and then the tempter came. That what we're seeing in Jesus' fasting of 40 days and 40 nights is preparing for the temptation. It's getting him ready for what is coming. And so Jesus goes and he fasts for this time to prepare. And so what we're going to talk about in preparation for temptation in our life, at least for this first part, is the idea of fasting and prayer and why they're so vital. Um, whenever we start to talk about fasting and prayer and we get into our prayer life, you've maybe heard me if you've been around here for a while say this. Uh, Paul Miller wrote an incredible book uh, called The Praying Life. And I always kind of push that and say when we start to talk about prayer, it's a great place to start. It's instructive and it's helpful and it's encouraging. It's not discouraging. If you're struggling with prayer and you start to read his book, he's immediately encouraging. And he's helpful and he's practical and it helps you to grow in your prayer life. So I just I just point you to that as we talk about these things. If you go, man, I need to grow in that and that's where I am. That's a very practical, helpful resource. Paul Miller, The Praying Life. But in that book, what he says is we start to think about fasting and prayer and how we resist temptation. That if we look to Jesus, who is all the things that we've talked about to this point, he is the eternal God. He is the logos. He is truth embodied. 
He has eternally existed. He created all things and he comes in and he takes on humanity and we see Jesus fasting and praying over and over and over again. And Paul Miller asks the question in his book. He says, why is it that we think as sinful, broken people that we can walk through this life not taking up the practices that Jesus himself saw as absolutely vital? That Jesus saw that he could not do life in this way in obedience to the Father, walking all this out perfectly without continually praying and fasting. And oftentimes we look at it and go, ah, I, can, I can get by. Or we know it and we hear that, but then we don't do it. And so I want us to think about what Jesus is doing in that and why it's so important as we begin to think about prayer and fasting and how it helps us with temptation and growing in obedience And so as we think about prayer just generally first, um, I think oftentimes uh, we think of prayer as as coming before God uh, with a laundry list of things that we want to see God do. God, I need you to do this and this and this and this is what's happening and now I'm filling you in. And we often kind of operate that way. And we pray for people and we pray for... That's not wrong or bad. I'm not saying that. But I want us to think a little deeper about that. Now... Not only is it not wrong or bad, we should pray. We should bring our petitions before the Lord. The Bible tells us to do that. It's a command. Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says, bring all your petitions Bring the things that you're dealing with. Come with thankfulness and in supplication and lay them before God and trust him. And there is a peace that comes with talking to him and bringing them to him and laying them at his feet. And it calls us to do that. It commands us to do that. And so I'm not in any way saying bringing our petitions to God is a bad thing. It's actually a good thing that we're commanded to do. But I want us to think about what we're after when we do that. When we start to think about prayer and what that looks like. And we come to God and we lay all those things before him and we tell him, uh, I'm praying for this and these people and these things and what's happening. Are we operating in, I'm cluing you in God on here's what's happening and here's the things that you need to do. God, maybe you weren't aware, but this is going on uh, with my kids right now and I'd like for you to fix it this way. Right? When we start to think that way, are we saying to God, that he doesn't know exactly how to handle it and he needs us to tell him? You may have forgotten, and so I'm going to remind you, and this is going on. Well, God knows everything. He knows all things. He's good. He's he's all-powerful. He's at work in these ways. We believe that. And so if prayer is not alerting him to, hey, you forgot these things and you need to pick this up or do it in this way, then what are we doing as we bring those petitions, as we come to him? Prayer is developing the relationship that you were most created for, to walk with God. You're made in God's image to know and to love him and then to love people. But first and foremost in that is we were created in God's image for that relationship with him. And so when we start to think about what prayer is and what we're doing, it helps reorder us, helps us put our trust in him rather than ourselves. It helps us and reminds us that there is one greater than we are. And we begin to bring those things before him, not to inform him on exactly how he needs to do it, but to cultivate the relationship with him. 
to spend time talking to him and walking with him. And so we start to pray in that vein and thinking about it in that way. And what happens is what Paul says here. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understandings, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You're reminded the God of the universe that created all things and holds all things together, loves you and wants to hear from you, seeks that time of intimacy with you. And you begin to approach him in that way. But if we don't see it that way, if we, if we kind of fall into that category, and I'm going to let you know what's wrong so that you can fix it. And then we start to operate in that way, maybe not even knowingly, but that's kind of what we're doing. We're telling God like, hey, this needs to be like this and this needs to be like this. And we approach him that way. Sometimes that can lead to almost a hardening of our heart towards the father. Because what happens a lot of times when we start to operate that way, telling God what he needs to do and how he needs to do it. And if you do these things then everything will be good. Uh, in a lot of ways, we're using that relationship with God as a means to an end. God, my life would be good if you'd fix all these things over here. So do that for me. Right. When we start to do that, we're talking to him in that way of like, you're not enough for me. I need all these other things set in a row in the right way so that I can rest and I can be okay. So God, would you do that just like this? And then when he doesn't answer just like that, and we take that approach, we're like, well, what's going on? I told him and he didn't do it. And it becomes this relationship where we're almost using God for a different ends versus I'm coming to him to tell him about these things, to grow in my relationship, to grow in my trust of him, to let him, to talk to him about these things and then trusting him with the outcome of them. But if we do it that way, we have this perspective. He is our heavenly father that loves us and knows all things and cares for us and in working in those ways, there's a wonderful and profound thing that begins to happen. Right? There's this glory that comes from growing and knowing and trusting him in all things. And it leads to what Paul's talking about here. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You can rest. It's realigning you that you're not in control and he is. Right? See, our sinfulness of our hearts wants to believe we're in control. You are not in control. The quicker you get to that, the better. <laughs> We often operate in the illusion that we're in control, but we're not. And prayer helps reorder us that that's the, the reality, that we're not in control, that God is. And so as we begin to do that, and we begin to bring our petitions and we begin to center ourselves on him. There's a great quote from Tim Keller in your bulletin this morning. So Paul Miller, The Praying Life, Tim Keller wrote a book called Prayer, I think Experiencing the Awe of God, something along those lines. I'd start with Paul Miller. Tim Keller goes a little deeper but it's an excellent book and helpful. But he says this in his book. God will either give us what we ask or he will give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. When you think about that, say that again. God will either give us what we ask or he would give us what we would have asked if we know everything he knows. And cultivating and growing in that relationship that God knows best and that he is working and that we can trust him and that we can love him and that we can come to him. And prayer becomes this language of we're cultivating that relationship. As we hear from God, we hear from God most clearly in his word. And we spend time in his word and then we talk back to him. And we lay these things out before him. And we meet him in the midst of that and we're developing that relationship. 
And as we do, it recenters us on the heart that it's not about us, that it's about him, which is exactly uh, the heart of temptation in our life, to believe that it's all about us. And as you cultivate that prayer life, as you spend time talking to God and you're continually reminded daily that it's not about you, that you're not in control, that God is, that is the next step to helping us resist temptation in our life that would say it is about you and you are in control and you've got to do this. And it helps recenter us in that. And so we see Jesus as he comes modeling this perfectly in every way as he's praying about everything. See it over and over. But the second part I want you to think about, not just prayer generally, but how does fasting help us in this pursuit? That's what prayer is. If we're developing this relationship with God and we're talking to him and we're recentering ourselves and we're ordering it around him, we're making it about him and that relationship with him. How does fasting help us? I think fasting is one of those things we say in the church and we talk about, but everybody's kind of like, I'm not really sure how that works. If we're honest, a lot of times it's like, fasting, really? And when we talk about fasting, we're talking about abstaining from food. It could be other things as well. Uh, Here, as we're talking about Jesus fasting and praying, it's food. Um, It's helpful at different times to fast from different things. Uh, Try fasting from your phone. You'll see how hard that is real quickly. But those type of things that we rely on and we put our trust in and we're always coming back to, removing them for a time. Fasting, you can fast for a meal or two or a day or longer. But as you start to do that, why are we doing that and how does that help? And so a couple of things I want us to think about with fasting. And the first I would say is we look to Jesus and his example and his life and what he says. He sees fasting and prayer is non-negotiable. You see it in the way he lives. You see him regularly fasting and praying throughout the Gospels. But you also see in the way he talks about it. So it's, he's backing it up with the way he lives, but then the way he teaches. Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you fast, fast like this. And when you pray, pray like... He doesn't say, if, as my disciples, you decide that you might want to include fasting in your spiritual disciplines, here's some good helps. No, he says, when you fast, do it this way. And when you pray, do it this way. And so we see Jesus talking about it as it's non-negotiable, that you're going to do this as a follower of Jesus. And so that's a pretty important point. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. That's not hard to understand. Jesus just talks like we're going to do this. Why? Why is it so important that we fast? Why is that the case? That we remove food for a time? That we do these things? And there's a couple things I want you to consider. Why that's the case and how it helps us with temptation, how it helps us in our prayer life. And the first thing I would say to you is it helps because it begins to alert us how needy we are. It alerts us to the neediness of our heart and our internal life and the way we think, but also just physically. When you start to remove food, you remove a meal or two or a day, suddenly you recognize how needy you are, how your body needs to be fed for you to live. If I don't eat anything, I'm fine until like noon, right? Right about noon, then all of a sudden my stomach makes some weird noise and you're like, whoa, I'm really hungry. And it starts to tell you and you start to be aware of it and you start to feel it. And it starts to remind me that if I don't feed my body, 
that over time my body will begin to shut down and eventually would die. That I am needy, that I need things from outside of me to take in to live. But what I've seen in my own life when I fast is not only does it alert me to I'm physically needy, that I need food and those hunger pains and those things that are there, need it for energy, but I see quickly how it affects my mood. It's very humbling how easy my mood, the joy that I have, the way in which I live is tied to things like what I put in my mouth. And it alerts me to how needy I am. That how up and down I can be based on what I've eaten. And it starts to show me that that is the case. It starts to remind me. And it reveals my heart in a lot of ways. Uh, I think it's partly, uh, maybe not quite as spiritual, but what they got right in those Snicker commercials the last couple of years. You know the one I'm talking about? It says you're not yourself when you're hungry. It's like some guy's playing football and then all of a sudden Betty White's in the middle of it. And they're like, you're playing football like Betty White. And it's like, well, eat something. And the guy eats it and he snaps back to himself. And, but the idea is like when you remove that and you are hungry, your mood changes, you start to see it, you start to feel it. So very practical way, it alerts us to how needy we are. It alerts us to how easily our mood changes by something as simple as what we've eaten or what we've not eaten. But then it also, if we let it and we start to seek God in those moments, right? The idea of fasting is that we would remove food and when hunger pains come, instead of reaching for something to eat, I would turn to God. And I would start to seek Him in those moments in my need. And what happens when we do that is it begins to help us develop a deeper reliance on God. When I eat every meal... I don't skip any meals and I'm never really truly hungry and I'm always kind of doing that and moving along. It's easy for me to forget how needy I am. It's easy for me to live in a self-reliance of I got this and I'm doing pretty good and everything's okay. But when that's removed, it alerts me to how needy I am. And what happens is I do <clears throat> and I realize that I need food and if I don't, that eventually I would die. The same is true that I need God. And even more true than this idea of food that keeps me alive is that God himself keeps me alive. I exist because God says so. Our first question in the New City Catechism, we put those in the bulletin each week if you haven't seen that before. What is our only hope in life and death? We are not our own, we belong to God. Body, soul, mind, spirit, and our Savior Jesus Christ. That is the reality of who we are. I exist because God says so. And hunger pains, if I remove food from my life for a time or a season, it alerts me to I'm needy, that I need this thing outside of me. But if I let it and I seek God, it reminds me that I need God. That without Him, I don't exist. That I am here for His glory. And suddenly that begins the way I change, uh, change the way I think about a whole lot of things. Instead of seeking my joy from what I put in my mouth and the way that tastes, I begin to turn and seek my joy from God. That you alone are the thing that sustains me. You are the alone, the only thing that can hold me together. You alone meet my deepest needs and it alerts me to those things. And so as I begin to do that, I'm alerted to how reliant I am on God for all things. But then as I do that, and you begin to fast and you have hunger pains and the physical uh, kind of alert that's there as you do, 
It does alert, alert you to your neediness. It does alert you to those things outside of you. It does alert you to how easy you can find your joy from all these other things. But it also begins uh, to serve as a physical reminder right? to seek God. I want you to think about why fasting very practically helps. I don't eat. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm really hungry. My stomach growls. And it's literally like God tapping me on the shoulder and going, seek me. Pray now. Don't forget me. And if I begin to cultivate that as a discipline, it's a wonderful way to grow in that intimacy with the Father. And I begin to seek Him in those moments. Instead of when I normally would just go get something to eat and sit down and eat it and then move on, I stop and I pray. And I talk to the Father about everything that's going on and how desperately I need Him. And how I want to know him more fully. And it literally becomes a physical reminder to pray. And I think God's working in all these different ways to help us to grow in that reliance and that relationship with him. And so if you've not fasted before, that seems like a kind of strange thing to you. Uh, in our personal discipleship plan, we talk about that. There's actually some helps. You can get it on the way to the fellowship hall. There's a stack of them sitting there. And there's some links that you can go look up to help you with fasting. Say you start with one meal. Skip breakfast one day a week and take 10, 15 minutes and pray and seek God instead of eating that meal. And then you try it two meals. And over time you begin to do that and then maybe you take a day that I'm going to seek the Lord in these things. And God meets you in that. Something magical about not eating the food, but what it does is it alerts you to these things that you are needy. And you exist because God says so. And he desperately wants to grow in that relationship with you. And so you begin to practice these things. But I want you to think about how it pertains even to resisting temptation. As you begin in those times when you maybe are irritable. I'm not eating and so now I'm kind of, ugh, leave me alone. I'm really hungry. And I learned to talk to God in those moments. It's preparation for when temptation comes and there's a struggle in my life. And what I see or what I know or what I've experienced in my own life is oftentimes temptations comes when I'm tired and when I'm hungry or I'm feeling sorry for myself or I'm kind of whatever. And so by doing that and putting that practice in place, it's good practice and preparation for the times of temptation coming. And I'm also fostering in myself a reliance on God in all things and reminding myself of that. So when those times come and the heart of temptation that says it's all about you and you don't need God in that, I've been training myself to remember that it's all about God, it's not about me. And so you see Jesus preparing for temptation by fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights. Praying and fasting and seeking the Father. And so when the temptation comes, oftentimes we think of that being hungry as part of the temptation. The truth is Jesus is ready. He's been spending 40 days with the Father and nothing else and in all things seeking him. And so when those temptations comes, he's ready for that. Second part I want us to see is what does he do when the temptation comes in those moments? Not just the preparation, but what happens as temptation comes. Verse 3, and a tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And if you make your way down through all three temptations, every time Satan comes and he says something and Jesus simply says every time it is written. And he quotes scripture back. And the first thing I want you to think about is there is no hesitation in what he says. There is no let me mull this over with you and we'll talk about it and we'll we'll work it out. We'll philosophize on whether or not this is good or bad or wrong or what our theology is in it. He looks to what God's word says and he says that's the answer. We said last week that Jesus is undoing the work of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, when they are tempted by Satan, the serpent comes. Did God really say? And they're like, huh, I don't know. Right? And then they take the fruit and they start to think about it. And then they start to talk about it. And they go, oh, maybe. Right? Jesus doesn't do that. There's no waiting and thinking about it and turning it over. He sticks straight to what God's word says and he doesn't spend time entertaining the temptation. He immediately speaks authoritatively by what God's word says. There's a great passage in Proverbs chapter 6 that says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? Or can he walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? And what the Proverbs is saying, and if you read the context, it goes on to talk about sexual sin. It says, can you spend time in temptation, cultivating those things, flirting with it, spending time around it and not be burned? And the answer is no. And what we see is Jesus undoing where we have failed by immediately and decisively saying no. He doesn't entertain it. He immediately turns and walks from it. He says completely and decisively, this is what God's word says on the subject, and I'm resting in that. And so when we start to think about it, we don't entertain the temptation. There's so many practical ways that is true. Be remiss if I didn't say this. Men, if you don't have an accountability partner for pornography, you are playing with fire. If you don't have something on your computer that marks where you go and why, you should do that. Because you don't want to carry coals next to your chest. You carry with you in your pocket the ability to see anything you want to see at any moment. And if we look to Jesus and the way he deals with those things, we don't even go there. And so put the things in place, even if it's not currently a temptation. Don't let it be. Put those things in place that we don't ever get in that position. That we need to answer decisively and completely about what God says. Right? Um, and by the way, if there's any doubt in your mind, Jesus condemns all pornography when he says, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. It's pretty clear cut. And so we hold fast to what his word says and we take it seriously. But then when you start to look at secondly, as he continues in, he answers all the temptation with scripture. All three times. He immediately and decisively says, this is what God's word says on the subject. And that's the end of it. And so obviously there's a couple things that come up with that. If you think about it, you have to know what God's word says. It's hard to answer decisively, but this is what God says on the subject if you don't know his word. And so I'll go back to even the preparation part. Yes, it's fasting and it's prayer and it's seeking the Lord, but it's also spending time in God's word. 
so that when those things that come up that are kind of gray area, you go, man, this is what God's word says. I don't even really have to mull this over because God clearly says this is what's true. And so we continue to, to seek him and hear his word. And that's exactly how Jesus even answers the first temptation. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm going to rest in what God says, what he says on the subject. But then there's another layer to this that you need to consider. We need to know what God's word says. We need to spend time in it to know what it says. So we need to be seeking God in his word. But then there's also another layer if you look closely. The second temptation there. Right, so Jesus answers what Satan says, but then it says the devil took him to the holy city and he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Satan begins to quote scripture. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands will they bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Satan goes and he begins to quote scripture and he quotes from, from Psalm 91, which is actually a messianic psalm, so he's actually using it right. In a lot of ways, it's a psalm about the Messiah to come, and if you're the Messiah, then do this. But here's the important part. He leaves out part. He leaves out the clear command of Scripture. As Jesus corrects him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And here's the important point I want you to consider. It's not only knowing God's Word, but it's laboring to understand the context and what it says and what the author meant and their intent and that takes time and it takes effort and it takes digging into it. We live in a culture right now that says, well, you can't really know anything. You can go online right now today and well, I, I'm not asking you, don't do this, but you could go out and I bet you could find someone who would make a case for why pornography is okay from the Bible on the internet. You could find somebody who's done that. You can find just about anything that somebody will say is all right. Well, it didn't really mean this, and it didn't really mean that, and you don't really have to follow it, and here's why. And almost always, it's because they're taking Scripture out of context. And they're not laboring to see the meaning of the author and what they're saying, and they twist and distort it. And if you don't know the Bible, you can read that and go, wow, it's pretty convincing. And it becomes a very important thing that we actually know what God's word says and we hold to it. There is a clear interpretation. There is a clear meaning and it can be found. It's not impossible to get there, but it takes some time spending in God's word and seeking him. And then as you do that and as you spend time in it, we turn and we do like Jesus does. This is what God's word says. And I'm going to rest in what he has said and what he has done. And so we hold fast, we become people of the word and we let the word stand over us. This is what God says is true. Not how I feel about it in the moment, but what God has said. And so as we begin to think about resisting temptation, it's not really that complicated. Spending time in prayer and seeking the Lord and fasting for the purpose of growing in our reliance on him and spending time in his word, it's a pretty good start. So we see Jesus doing right here. But I want to end here, the last part, as you think about that. It's easy for us in the sinfulness of our heart to go, oh, well, the way to do this is I do these things. 
put a bunch of disciplines in place. I pray and I fast and I read my Bible and I do these things and then I'll be great. But if you don't do that resting in the finished work of Jesus, it's quickly going to go wrong. So we started last week that Jesus has already purchased your righteousness. You are already righteous before God by faith through grace and what Jesus has done and accomplished. And so my prayer and my Bible reading and my putting these disciplines in my life is to remind me the great grace of God and what he's done for me in Jesus. And when I blow it and when I do sin, I'm reminded that God has already done it. That where I failed, Jesus has succeeded. And what happens when you do that is you begin to experience the grace of God more and more and more. And the grace of God is what changes you. As you spend time in the Word and you see how gracious God is and how good He is and how much He loves you and you experience that, that changes you. That's why we sing that song that we sang this morning, By Grace Alone. I'm going to run the race by grace alone. I'm going to reach the end by grace alone. I'm going to be changed by grace alone because I continue to look at the finished work of Jesus. And so we do pray and we do fast and we do study and we do seek him in his word, but we do so all the while pointing to the great news of what Jesus has already accomplished. And that's what changes us. And he promises that he's going to finish that work that he's begun in you. He's going to bring it to completion. We're going to rest in his finished work and he's going to do what he started. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of what you've done for us. We thank you that you have done what we could never do for us. We thank you that you're not just an example and a pattern that we follow, although you are that. And we thank you for giving us the perfect example. But we also thank you that when we fail to live up to the perfect example that you finished the work for us. Help us to seek you daily. Help us to be reminded that this life doesn't revolve around us, but you. Help us to put into practice these things that you've told us. Help to alert us to the truth of who you are. I pray that you would help us as a body of believers to hold one another accountable, to encourage one another, to speak the truth to each other. And it would all be that we would grow in our understanding of your great grace and love for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.